Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for magic. Hello and welcome back to Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm Ryan Daly and I've got a special treat for you this episode. First, I'll be reviewing a three-part Justice League of America story that features both stars of this podcast, the blonde bombshell, Black Canary, and the mistress of magic, Zatanna. Then, as a bonus, I've got two issues of an indie comic called Tough Girl that I picked up last summer at Heroes Con. What's so special about Tough Girl, you ask? Just look at the familiar pattern on her legs and find out. Right now, we're going to take a quick promotional break. When we return, there's a crisis brewing on Earth 2, and it'll take three teams of superheroes to save the day. Don't go away. We're back in a minute. It was 1938. The country continues its slow recovery from the Great Depression, while war clouds loom throughout Asia and German aggression builds in Europe. Americans seek comfort and distraction. It was a time when the most popular form of entertainment was radio. But a new form had been growing steadily and was set to explode. It was to become the golden age of the American comic book. My name is Chris. And my name is Mike. Please join us as we explore comics in the golden age between 1938 and 1955. All genres will be discussed, from superheroes to crime, horror, science fiction, humor, and western. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. Last episode, I reviewed Zatanna's appearances in backup features on Adventure Comics. Her next appearance after that was one month later in the star-studded Justice League of America 100. This issue was the first in a three-part story continuing in issues 101 and 102. Zatanna and Black Canary both appear in issues 100 and 102. I'm going to review the whole story, stopping between chapters to highlight the characters and my overall impressions of the event. All three chapters are written by the late, great Len Wein, edited by Julie Schwartz, penciled by Dick Dillon, and inked by Joe Giella. Dick Giordano also helped ink the third part, and all three issues had covers by Nick Carty. Part 1, from Justice League of America 100, cover dated August 1972, is titled The Unknown Soldier of Victory. The Justice League of America gathers for their 100th meeting, but not in their current satellite headquarters orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth. Instead, they choose to meet at their original base, the secret sanctuary buried beneath a mountain. Aquaman, Black Canary, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and Hawkman are the first to arrive. They're joined by the Atom, who shoots out of a telephone receiver that should have been disconnected, but the Mighty Might rewired it in the middle of his travels. 
somehow. In Central City, the Flash and the Elongated Man finish capturing the Casino Gang before heading to the meeting. On a distant planet, the Martian Manhunter regrets that he will not be able to attend the meeting, for he's busy overseeing the rebuilding of his civilization on Mars 2. Metamorpho turns into an airplane and ditches his boss, Simon Stagg, while Snapper Carr looks forlornly at his invitation to the League's anniversary, knowing he can't attend after the way he betrayed them recently. And because nobody really likes Snapper Carr, he sucks. Batman beats up some crooks on his way to the meeting, while far away in the Alpha Centauri system, Adam Strange explains to his wife that he won't make it to the meeting because the Zeta Beam won't send him back to Earth for days yet. Back in the Secret Sanctuary, Superman has arrived and comments about how much can change over the length of 100 meetings. The Flash agrees, mentioning that he was a rookie police scientist when the Justice League first formed, and now he's a married man. At that moment, Zatanna magically teleports at their side, telling the Flash that his happy nuptials are the most depressing thing she's heard. Batman arrives with Diana Prince, the depowered and mod-dressed former Wonder Woman. Green Lantern asks the three women, Diana, Dinah, and Zatanna, to cut the giant 100th birthday cake, because, you know, he's an ass. And the women agree to do it rather than stab him with the cake cutter, because, you know, they're still only women after all. But, just as they're cutting the cake, the Justice League of America fade out of corporeal existence, pass through a void, and blink back into reality, not on the Earth they normally inhabit, though. The League rematerializes on the parallel dimension Earth-2 in the company of the Justice Society of America. The newcomers to the League, unfamiliar with the JSA, are introduced to Starman, Dr. Fate, Dr. Midnight, the Sandman, Red Tornado, Wildcat, Johnny Thunder, the Hourman, and the Earth-2 version of Wonder Woman. Dr. Fate explains why he brought the League to Earth-2 by showing them a vision of the planet with a gargantuan hand holding Earth-2 in its grip. The massive, mystical hand belongs to an evildoer known as the Iron Hand. Kind of on the nose. If the world does not surrender to his total dominion in 48 hours, the hand will close and crush Earth-2. Twice the JSA tried to stop it. Twice they failed, so they called the Justice League for help. All of Dr. Fate's magic could not give him insight into defeating the Iron Hand. It only showed him a dreamlike image of a gravestone marked, Here in honored glory rests an unknown soldier of victory, who died that his world might live. Alone, Dr. Fate could not commune with the knower of all things called the Oracle, but Zatanna adds her own magic abilities to bolster Fate's power, as does Johnny Thunder's genie, the Thunderbolt. The three magical beings summon forth the awesome Oracle, who tells them the power to defeat the Iron Hand lies with the Seven Soldiers of Victory. But no one from the League or Society remembers the Seven Soldiers of Victory. The Oracle describes them, the Vigilante, the Star-Spangled Kid and Stripesy, the Shining Knight, Green Arrow and Speedy of Earth-2, and the Crimson Avenger, who had a manservant-slash-sidekick named Wing. The Seven Soldiers seemingly perished in their final battle with the Nebula Man. Oracle says they're not dead, but they are scattered around different points in time, and they may not remember who they were or where they come from. The Justice League and Justice Society combine and split into seven groups of three. Superman, Metamorpho, and Sandman. Aquaman, Green Lantern, and Wildcat. The Flash, Zatanna, and Red Tornado. Black Canary, Green Arrow, and Johnny Thunder. The Atom, Elongated Man, and Dr. Fate. Batman, Starman, and Hourman. 
and Hawkman, Dr. Midnight, and Earth-2 Wonder Woman. The Wonder Woman of Earth-1 chooses to remain behind as backup, while the seven teams go off in search of the seven soldiers. The Oracle also gives the heroes some background exposition on the seven soldiers. They all came together when a bad guy named The Hand found out that he was dying and decided to commit a grand villainous scheme so that he wouldn't die unremembered. Individually, the heroes of the Seven Soldiers and their sidekicks beat up the five villains the Hand employed in his scheme, before finally coming together. They stopped the Hand, seemingly forever, before he could enact his mysterious final plot, whatever that may have been. Dr. Fate asks why the Oracle used the qualifier seemingly for the word forever. Gee, I wonder. So, there are seven triads, each going on an adventure to find a forgotten Golden Age hero. The first we follow is the team-up of Dr. Fate, the Atom, and the Elongated Man, who land in Mexico during the time of the Aztecs. They appear on the outer edge of a village during an important cultural and religious ceremony, and are shocked to discover the Aztec King is the costumed Crimson Avenger. The heroes sneak into the Aztec Temple throne room, where the Crimson Avenger sits next to a glowing rock. Elongated Man tries to tell him they've come to the rescue, but Crimson Avenger freaks out at the sight of the intruders and blasts the heroes with strange energy. Elongated Man and Dr. Fate wake up in chains, but the Atom was small enough to not get captured. It's clear that the Avenger has no memory of his past life. He really thinks that he's the Aztec God King. The Atom frees Fate and Elongated Man. Ralph takes out the guards while Dr. Fate engages in a magic battle with the Crimson Avenger. Finally, the Atom knocks the Crimson Avenger out. Dr. Fate destroys the glowing rock, figuring it to be the source of the Avenger's power. Crimson Avenger comes to, realizing that the rock was part of the Nebula Man hurled through time with him. With that rock destroyed, the Crimson Avenger remembers himself again and is eager to help the others with their quest. But, as the Oracle brings them back to the present time, will it be enough to stop the threat of Iron Hand? A man we learn, as if it wasn't obvious, is the same villain known as the Hand who previously fought the Seven Soldiers. To be continued next issue in The Hand That Shook the World. Okay, a few quick highlights of this chapter before we move on. I love Zatanna's introduction. Teleporting in so suddenly that she catches Superman and the Flash by surprise? That's talent. I also like her slightly flirty line to the Flash about feeling depressed that he's married. It's a nice follow-up after their first encounter when she kissed him during her stage show, right in front of Barry's then-fiancé, no less. Unfortunately, the story takes an abrupt nosedive on that same page when Green Lantern conjures up a cake cutter and asks the three ladies on the team to serve cake to the men. And they do it? Bullshit. Wonder Woman, Black Canary, and Zatanna go on and beat Hal's ass. Make them cut their own damn cake. So yeah, then we get the inevitable meeting with the Justice Society and the threat of the big green hand crushing the Earth. It's cool that Dr. Fate has such confidence in Zatanna's magical abilities. I wish she did too. Um, that's pretty much all Zatanna gets to do in this issue, which is more than Black Canary gets. We see each of them partnered up with their different teammates. It's cool that Zatanna gets partnered up with the Flash, and it's predictable that Black Canary goes with Green Arrow. As for the others... Uh, Red Tornado and Johnny Thunder are my least favorite characters in these combined groups, so naturally they are attached to the two groups I want to follow. Every other triad the Oracle comes up with is stronger or more interesting, I think, because they don't have a weak link, really. 
And the last thing I'll mention is Iron Hand has kind of a cool look. I'm not sure he's a good villain for the Seven Soldiers of Victory, but I don't know because I don't think I've ever read a single story or issue of the classic Seven Soldiers of Victory. The panels we get on pages 17 and 19 with them fighting the other various rogues, though, those are really cool, and they make their adventures seem enticing. All right, on to part two, The Hand That Shook the World, from Justice League of America, issue 101, cover dated September 1972. Diana Prince, the not-so-Wonder Woman of Earth-1, is holding down the fort in the Justice Society of America's headquarters when three more heroes of Earth-2 arrive, demanding to know what she's doing there. Diana spends two pages recapping the major beats of the previous issue to Green Lantern Alan Scott, Mr. Terrific, and the Earth-2 Robin. Once they're up to speed, they join Diana in sitting around and waiting for everyone else to move the plot forward. Cut to Superman, Sandman, and Metamorpho the Element Man arriving in Mongolian China some 800 years earlier. A Chinese monk tells the triad that the Great Khan's army is sweeping across the land and will soon destroy a nearby museum and all of its cultural heritage. He also mentions Genghis Khan's armored warrior who rides a flying horse, which sounds a lot like the Shining Knight to Sandman. Metamorpho turns into helium gas and floats into the Mongol camp. He wakes Sir Justin, hoping to rescue him, only to discover that Shining Knight has been brainwashed by Khan's mystic vizier and chases the intruder off. The next day, Genghis Khan's army marches, with only the trio of heroes to defend the monks. Superman takes the fight right to Shining Knight, but is thwarted by Sir Justin's magic-based powers, magic being one of the Man of Steel's few weaknesses. So, instead of trying again or using his superpowers against any of the 15,000 Mongol warriors, Superman just leaves, flying away, telling the others he has something important to do. Yep, Superman flies away, leaving Sandman and Metamorpho to fend off tens of thousands of warriors. Sandman, you'll recall, is just a normal human with a gun that shoots sleeping gas. But... Inexplicably, the two of them handle it. Metamorpho transmutes into a tank, and Sandman gives him the chemical formula for his knockout gas. The tank's shells explode in the ranks of the Mongols, putting the whole army to sleep, including Genghis Khan and Shining Knight. After the two of them save the day and capture one of the soldiers of victory, Superman returns, claiming to have moved the entire hill upon which sat the museum. So in case Sandman and Metamorpho failed to stop the entire army, there would be no village to sack. Sure, Superman, that was a good use of your talents. Before they all leave, the Sandman leaves one of his little poems written for the Great Khan, trolling the Mongols like a pro. Good one, Sandman. Back in the Justice Society headquarters, Green Lantern gets tired of waiting around and decides to investigate the mysterious grave of the unknown soldier of victory. He and Robin and Mr. Terrific head to the Himalayas, stopping along the way to save some people from a devastating earthquake or whatever. Elsewhere, and else when, Hawkman, Earth 2 Wonder Woman, and Dr. Midnight land in medieval England. The heroes are instantly besieged by a volley of arrows from a group of green-clad archers. Wonder Woman blocks the assault with her bracelets, and Hawkman knocks the archers back with his wings. Once the archers are captured, however, the heroes realize they are the Merry Men of Legend. Their leader, Little John, tells them Robin Hood is going to be executed by the Sheriff of Nottingham the next day. 
the three superheroes, bolstered by Little John and the Merry Men, storm Nottingham Castle. Wonder Woman brings down the drawbridge with her golden lasso. Hawkman takes out many of the guards. Dr. Midnight sneaks into the jail under the cover of darkness from his blackout bombs. And there he discovers that the Green Arrow of Earth-2 has switched places with Robin Hood. Green Arrow helps the others escape and tells Little John that the real Robin Hood is recovering safely with a friar nearby. Then the four time-tossed adventures are whisked away by the Oracle's magic. Back in what was at the time present-day Earth 2, the villainous Iron Hand ruminates over the events of the story. His inner monologue recalls how the seven soldiers of victory stopped him once and believed him dead, but he survived and now he's going to use his invention to crush the Earth and no group of heroes can stop him. In ancient Egypt, Batman, Starman, and Our Man find their target, Stripesy, a slave of the pharaoh, helping to move slabs of stone in the construction of Khufu's tomb. That night, the heroes spring into action to rescue Stripesy. Unfortunately, Starman loses his cosmic rod, and the heroes get captured, tied up, and thrown into the tomb to die. Batman breaks Our Man's hourglass to use the glass to cut free of his bonds, then Starman leads them out of the tomb by tracking the molecules of his cosmic rod. They fight off some guards and retrieve the rod, then they find Stripesy again. He helps them beat up the last of the pharaoh's men, then the oracle transports them back home. Meanwhile, Diana Prince continues to wait for the heroes to return to the JSA's base. She doesn't notice the threat of Iron Hand sneaking up behind her. To be continued next issue, and one of us must die. Okay, neither Black Canary nor Zatanna appear in this issue, but there are still a few things I wanted to highlight. First, Sandman and Metamorpho held off the entire Mongolian army without Superman's help. Superman moved a mountain that, it turns out, he didn't even need to bother with because Sandman and Metamorpho held off the entire Mongolian army by themselves. Wow! Also, Man, the Golden Age slash Seven Soldiers version of Green Arrow is so much better than the Bronze Age version that I have to read about whenever I want to cover a Black Canary story. Can't these guys just swap bodies or Earths or something? And finally, it seems like a real missed opportunity that Hawkman didn't get sent back in time to ancient Egypt where the heroes were kept in Khufu's tomb. Seems like he might have had some insider knowledge that would have helped them out in that adventure. Alright, nothing else to say on this one, so... Part 3, from Justice League of America 102, is cover dated October 1972 and called, And One of Us Must Die. The Oracle sits in his, I don't know, man cave beyond time and space, reflecting on the events of the last two issues for the benefit of the reader. He finds himself surprisingly invested in the outcome of this epic struggle, hoping the Justice League and Justice Society members win in spite of being so ancient and omniscient he shouldn't really care about the fate of one world. But the Oracle digresses. Let's check in on one of our triads, shall we? First up is one that I should care about. Green Arrow, Black Canary, and... <sighs> Johnny Thunder. They arrive somewhere in pre-colonial North America, and immediately the two guys start acting like douchebags. Johnny grabs Dinah's arm and tells her to search for their soldier of victory with him while Green Arrow goes off alone. For once, Ollie is actually justified in being pissed at this kind of behavior, but because Ollie's a jackass through and through, he's pissed for the wrong reason. Not at the way Johnny dismisses Ollie's relationship with Dinah, but that Johnny fails to recognize Dinah as Ollie's girl, with all of the connotation of property that includes. Thankfully, Dinah tells them both that if they're going to treat her that way, they can go screw themselves. 
the trio find their target, the Western hero Vigilante, tied up and about to be burned at the stake by a tribe of Native Americans. Johnny Thunder tries to summon his genie Thunderbolt with the phrase, Say you, but when he says it, nothing happens. Gee, that's never happened before. How embarrassing to suffer superpowered impotence in front of Black Canary. A party of native warriors ambushes the three heroes and captures them. The three pale-faced blondes wake up in the tent and try to reason with the tribal shaman. He ignores their pleas and informs them that they'll all be killed right after he kills Vigilante. He tells them this in standard English, by the way. Then he throws a smoke bomb on the floor or something and leaves the tent. Just before the shaman barbecues the Vigilante, Ali shoots an arrow that frees the Wild West hero. We are not told or shown how the heroes escaped, only that the smoke bomb caused Johnny Thunder to have hiccups for some reason. As the trio teams up with Vigilante to fight the Native Americans, they are beset upon by a herd of stampeding buffalo. At a few seconds before the last second, Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt arrives, explaining that it took him a while to travel backwards hundreds of years to find his master. He gives Johnny some attitude until we reach the actual last second before the buffalo stampede tramples them. Thunderbolt turns the herd into a swarm of harmless butterflies. Then, mission accomplished, the Oracle Spirit's Green Arrow, Black Canary, Johnny Thunder, the Thunderbolt, and Vigilante away to safety. The next group we follow is Aquaman, Wildcat, and Green Lantern, which is, pound for pound, probably my favorite trio because I really like all three of these guys. They're in prehistoric times roughly 50,000 years ago. A group of savage Cro-Magnon men have cornered what looks like a distorted image of the Star-Spangled Kid at the entrance to a cave. As the heroes get closer, the yellow fog causes Green Lantern's ring to fail, but Wildcat doesn't need any ring. He runs headlong into the group of cavemen, fists flying, until there's no one left but a hulking Cro-Magnon Goliath. Even the giant falls under the punishing might of the former heavyweight champion of the world. Aquaman, Wildcat, and Green Lantern enter the cave just as heavy rains begin to fall outside. Aquaman finds the star-spangled kid, who had been using a piece of quartz and scrap metal to cast the distorted image of himself to keep the cavemen from finding him. He tells Aquaman that he has the flu, and if even one of the prehistoric men contracted the disease and died from it, the effects on the future of humankind could be catastrophic. Speaking of catastrophe, the rain gives way to a flash flood, filling the cave with water. Aquaman grabs the kid and swims out of the cave, reunited with Green Lantern and Wildcat. Once together, the Oracle carries them away. And so we come to the final triad, consisting of the Flash, Zatanna, and Red Tornado. Okay, I know I'm biased because I don't like the Red Tornado, but why would you put him on a team with the Flash? Tactically, what advantage does Red Tornado give you that the Flash can't already do? Anyway, they arrive on a Mediterranean island. They scout around, and it doesn't take the Flash's super speed very long to find the final soldier of victory, Speedy, the boy archer sidekick of Green Arrow. Only, Speedy's lower half is that of a horse. He's been transformed into a centaur. The heroes quickly discover the island is inhabited by Circe, the mythological sorceress who could turn people into animal hybrids. So, uh, this story is treating myths as history now? I mean, I guess that shouldn't be weird in a book with Wonder Woman and all, but I, it seems weird to me. I don't, I can't explain that. Anyway, Circe casts a spell on Speedy's arrows and commands him to target the superheroes. No matter how fast the Flash or Red Tornado run, 
or what kind of magical defense Zatanna puts up, Speedy's bewitched arrows find their targets. Once struck, the Flash becomes half snail, Zatanna half hummingbird, and Reddy half mole. Cersei commands the Flash and Red Tornado to battle to the death, which results in them both spinning their arms really fast to create whirlwinds. Zatanna, meanwhile, realizes that the rapid flapping of her wings creates sounds. After a little trial and error, she is able to flap in such a way as to replicate the sound of her voice, saying, Sagam fo akrik inogib. The spell undoes Cersei's magic, returning the heroes to their true forms. Red Tornado uses his power to suck Cersei's magic wand out of her hand, and then Zatanna casts a spell paralyzing the sorceress, a feat that instantly undoes all of her previous spells, turning Speedy and the other people of the island back to normal. With that done, the Oracle returns Flash, Zatanna, Red Tornado, and Speedy back to the hidden base of the Justice Society of America. All seven soldiers of victory are gathered with the 21 members of the Justice League and Justice Society that set out to save them. But if all seven soldiers are accounted for, Johnny asks, who is buried in the Unknown Soldier's tomb? Alan Scott, Mr. Terrific, and Earth 2 Robin return to answer the question. The Unknown Soldier of Victory who died in battle with the Nebula Man was actually the Crimson Avenger's Asian manservant Wing. After his noble death, he was buried in a holy temple in the Himalayas. At that moment, the Seven Soldiers' arch-enemy, the Iron Hand, reveals himself, holding Diana Prince hostage. But the once-and-future Wonder Woman is no damsel in distress. She effortlessly chops his mechanical hand off and subdues him. But with his Iron Hand damaged, Iron Hand can't deactivate the giant nebuloid hand that's going to crush Earth 2. Luckily, there are like 32 superheroes here, and at least some of them have an idea. The Seven Soldiers of Victory recreate the weapon they once made to destroy the Nebula Man. Then Superman, Doctor Fate, and the Green Lanterns of Earth 1 and 2 charge the weapon with all of their energy. The question of who can send the weapon to the Big Hand and survive is answered when Red Tornado takes off with it on his own, leaving behind a note asking his friends to remember his noble sacrifice. The sacrifice in question happens off-panel. We are told that Red Tornado and the Giant Hand died in an explosion. The Justice Society members mourn their lost android buddy, and the Seven Soldiers, or mostly just Crimson Avenger, mourn his little Asian stereotype buddy. Justice League doesn't have to mourn anybody, I guess. And that's the end. Alright, let's get into Black Canary's mission. First, we get some really bad, I mean just awful, treatment of the blonde bombshell by the men she's saddled with, which is pretty normal for both the time these issues were written and for the characters in question, both of whom are big dicks. I suppose it is a nice callback that Dinah debuted in a Johnny Thunder story, and we've had hints of his romantic feelings toward her, but he doesn't have to go all... I mean, I could name a dozen of the men who have been accused over the last couple of weeks of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Just pick one, and that's who we'll assume Johnny is behaving like for the purposes of this analogy. But almost as bad as the treatment of Dinah by Ollie and Johnny is the fact that she doesn't do anything else in the story. She plays no part in the resolution or the plot or the acquisition of the vigilante. Literally, the only thing Black Canary does is get jerked around by two horny men. And the rest of their mission doesn't make sense, either. How did they escape from the shaman's tent? Why did he blow magic dust on them? Or was it a smoke bomb? Why did it give Johnny hiccups but not the other two? Also, once they rescue Vigilante, the Oracle should have transported them away. 
why do they linger long enough to be endangered by the stampede just so Johnny's Thunderbolt can arrive and save them? This threat is meaningless because they should not have still been there. Alright, let's move on to the Zatanna mission. She at least gets something to do. I'm not sure it makes sense that by flapping her hummingbird arms she could duplicate the sound of her voice counteracting Cersei's spell, but I'm willing to give it a go because she's actually pulling her weight and saving her partners. Then she incapacitates Cersei when they finally attack her. Zatanna is arguably the heaviest hitter on this team. She accomplishes more than the Flash or Red Tornado. And speaking of Red Tornado, I'm glad he died. If you listened to my Christmas episode from 2016, you know I hate Red Tornado, and I imagine writers hated him too, because they kept killing him off or destroying him or making him a traitor. So why the hell did he keep coming back? And I just thought of another reason why he sucks. His sacrifice in this story, which is totally a cry for attention, even if it is intended to be posthumous attention, his sacrifice robs the Seven Soldiers of Victory of their, you know, moment of victory. This story was about bringing these seven heroes back together, but why? What do they do? They don't stop Iron Hand, Wonder Woman does that. They don't stop the giant Nebula Hand, Red Tornado does that. I guess they build a big lightning rod thing. Gee, that's really exciting to see in your superhero comic. I'm glad we rescued them from the far corners of time and space so they could build the JSA a device that should have been able to figure out on their own. Also, while I like Diana Prince taking down the Iron Hand, it kind of negates him as a threat, but maybe that's more to do with the fact that her triumph over Iron Hand is the dramatic climax of the story, but there's still like five pages left after that. The larger threat of the giant hand, that's solved as an afterthought, and it's rushed. How the final explosion is done off-panel. I'm not sure if Ween ran out of pages or if he forgot what the big hand was supposed to do, but the last part of the story is really clunky and rushed. Maybe he just couldn't wait to kill Red Tornado and the mechanics of the story suffered? Also, what did the Unknown Soldier's Tomb have to do with anything? Why did it matter that Crimson Avenger's version of Kato died and was buried there? What purpose did uncovering that mystery serve? I reviewed this story, these three issues, because Zatanna appears in two of them, and I'm going through her publication history until she eventually changes costumes. And her presence in the story was good, at least, even if it only amounted to, like, six pages out of sixty. I think in order to like this story, though, you have to be a fan of Earth-1 and Earth-2 team-up events, which, honestly, for me, have always been sort of hit or miss. And you have to like the Seven Soldiers of Victory. I mean, you have to really like them. Enough to be happy just to see them in the story, even though they do next to nothing. Alright, that is it for Justice League of America 100 through 102. The next time we see Zatanna will be in the pages of Supergirl's self-titled comic. And I'm going to review those on the next episode with a very special guest that you'll totally never figure out. I mean, who could I possibly recruit to talk about Supergirl comics? You'll never believe it. But, this episode ain't over. I'm going to take another promo break, and when I come back, a new character, a new comic, and a new set of nets. Hey there! I'm Nathaniel with some exciting news about the Punch Like a Girl podcast. <laughs> oh, hey, hey, Liz. I'm I'm just doing the promo. Tell the people about how the podcast we do together, covering graphic novels and trade collections, starring female protagonists, is moving. To, and um, actually, I'm I'm mansplaining again, aren't I? Uh huh. Well, I, I can just, um, here, here you go. Punch Like a Girl is joined in the Fire and Water Network, and as of October, will be found on the network feed and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Is it okay if I just invite folks to join us in celebrating the girls who kick butt? I think you already did. Yes!
Nailed it! Don't worry, folks. I'll keep him in line. Last summer, I had the extraordinary privilege to attend HeroesCon in Charlotte, North Carolina. The convention was fine and the city was nice, but what made it really special was meeting so many members of the Fire and Water and Greater Podcasting community. I have gushed about the experience previously on an episode with Rob and Shag and Chris and Cindy. There were a few things about the con that I wanted to specifically single out in this podcast, however. First, as this is primarily a podcast about Zatanna and Black Canary, I got some sketches of the lovely ladies. I got Sandy Jarrell, who worked on the Black Canary series, to do a sketch of Zatanna. I figure, I've seen his Dinah, now I want to see his Z. And it's great. I also met Ron Randall, the creator of Trekker. Darren and Ruth Sutherland of the Trekker Talk podcast were nice enough to introduce me to Mr. Randall, and I got a gorgeous headshot sketch of Black Canary from him. Beautiful job, I would love Ron Randall on a Black Canary book. And that was the Black Canary and Zatanna portion of the con, but that's not all there was in the realm of fishnets. There was, for instance, the running tally of cosplayers wearing fishnets that Rob Kelly and I were keeping track of. It's been so long now, but I think we got up to 14, give or take three that might have been duplicates. But there was something else that pinged my radar. While I was making the rounds of Artist's Alley, I came across an artist named Brian Munn, who had at his table the first two issues of an indie comic called Unstoppable Tough Girl. That's tough spelled T-U-F-F. The titular hero, Tough Girl, is a costumed crime fighter who wears, you guessed it, fishnet stockings. Allow me to describe her costume as it appears on the cover to Tough Girl issue 1, a cover whose upper rim blazons with a blister text, the fantastic first issue. Think black canary but in red, even down to her ginger hair. For the torso, gloves, and boots, think Black Canary from the late 90s Chuck Dixon-era Birds of Prey. It's a skin-tight jumpsuit onesie, but there's a nice low cut to give her some cleavage. It's primarily red with some black accents. But for the legs and face, think Golden Age Black Canary, lacy fishnets, red boots, and a domino mask. I can't stress enough, my gut reaction upon seeing her was they took Black Canary from 1947 and gave her outfit a modern skin without losing the classic aesthetic. So, like a great white shark to a bucket of chum, I went right up to Brian Munn's table and started talking to him about the character. And before long, I was walking away with Unstoppable Tough Girl issues 1 and 2, both signed by Munn, plus an Ashcan preview of the yet-to-be-published issue 3, a little half-sheet with a 12-page mini-comic strip, and a business card. 
When I got back to the hotel later on, I cracked open the first issue to find out all I could about Tough Girl. I'll give you the basics of the two issues that I read, and I'll put up pictures of the covers and some interiors on the website post for this episode. One big thing to know is these are not just single-story issues. The Adventures of Tough Girl run the first 12 pages of a 48-page book. The rest of the material is devoted to Brian Munn's other creations, like Little Tuffy and the Tough Girls, and Wichita the Tough Mutt, which are both as adorable and kitty-centric as their names suggest. Both issues are published by Monster Enterprises. The art is drawn by Munn, the scripts are written by Merrill Hagen, not Merle Haggard, as I accidentally wrote the first time. Uh, the covers are in color, but the interiors are all black and white. The first story in Tough Girl number 1 is called When the Tough Get Going, and it sees the titular character fighting what seems to be her go-to villain, Rip, a reptile man like the Lizard or Killer Croc, but kind of a sharper dresser. He's like a mob enforcer or shakedown man, and he's missing an eye from a previous fight with Tough Girl. After she stops Rip from shaking down the owners of the dry cleaner, Tough Girl is called away to deal with a vigilante named Eagle One who is robbing a mobbed-up casino. Yeah, let me explain that. First, Eagle One is wearing an Elvis Presley-style jumpsuit, but he's not a full-on impersonator. Different hair and sunglasses. Second, the casino he's robbing is run by the criminal organization Larceny Incorporated. Tough Girl doesn't care that the mob's finances are getting hit, but Eagle One is putting innocent lives in danger. They start to fight, and during the skirmish, Eagle One manages to take her belt off. Now, the belt contains the alien gem that is the source of all of Tough Girl's power. Without it, she's as vulnerable as anybody. But Eagle One doesn't realize that he's just depowered her. She does some quick thinking and elusive maneuvering to get her belt back without revealing it's the source of her power. She eventually takes Eagle One down, obviously. He's taken into custody, but not by the cops, instead by the casino security. He's then brought before the head of Larceny Inc., a mysterious figure named Hemlock, who says that he let Eagle One try to rob the casino as a way of drawing out Tough Girl. They want to study her powers and her limits. And that's the end of the first story. It's 12 pages. That is followed by a one-page strip about Little Tuffy, a cartoonish junior version of Tough Girl. There's some ancillary stuff like notes, character sketches, pinups. Then there's a two-part story about Wichita, the Tough Mutt, another kid-friendly tale starring Tough Girl's pet dog. It's a sweet and... Actually, between the two parts, there are more pages dedicated to the Tough Mutt story than to Tough Girl. What's really interesting, I think, is the back cover of the issue is a breakdown of Tough Girl's origin in ten panels. This is a really cool, concise primer for the character. It explains that her real name is Debbie Durance, her father was an Air Force pilot, he found this mysterious gem overseas, Debbie's mom passed the gem to her before she died, eventually Debbie realized the gem gave her super strength. She started to use that power to help people. The grown-up Debbie is now a pilot and partner in her father's private airline company. I guess think of her normal life as a cross between Carol Danvers and Carol Ferris. This is a great material that I don't think should be on the back cover. If anything, put it on the inside front cover. This is good info to have when I'm getting into the book. I rarely ever look at the back of a comic, though. I almost miss this stuff entirely. It's really good and a useful primer, but poorly placed on the back. The lead story in Tough Girl issue 2 is called Give Me a D, Give Me an I, Give Me an E. And yes, indeed, it features Tough Girl fighting Amazon cheerleaders. It begins with Tough Girl as one of two celebrity judges for a local cheerleading competition. No problem with that, except the other judge is an evil witch doctor-looking guy named Dr. Doctor. That first doctor is, as in the degree of learning or medicine, 
The second doctor, as in his name, is spelled D-O-C-K-T-E-R. Dr. Doctor gives the winning trophy to the team of cheerleaders, but evil spirits float out of the trophy and possess the cheerleaders, turning them into super-strong Amazonian brutes, and they start to kick Tough Girl's ass. She tries destroying the trophy, but that doesn't undo the spell. The conflict ends when Tough Girl convinces the girls that their team lost, so they should just go home, like losers. However, the cheerleaders are picked up by agents of Larceny Incorporated to be used against Tough Girl later. So, in just these first two stories, we've established quite a rogues gallery for Tough Girl. The overarching bad guy group is Larceny Inc., run by Hemlock. We don't know anything really about him. But we have Rip, the Reptile Man, Eagle One, Dr. Doctor, and the Amazon Cheerleaders. It's really depressing to admit that Tough Girl, in just two issues, has a better villain's bench than either Black Canary or Zatanna. The rest of Tough Girl issue 2 is like the first issue. There's a couple of one-page strips featuring Little Tuffy. There's a two-part story about Wichita the Tough Mutt. There's a pin-up by a different artist. This is all good stuff, and the back cover is a revised version of Tough Girl's origin and a recap of issue 1. I have to say, I love Tough Girl. I love her world, even though we're just getting a taste of it. I mean, there are images of her as a pilot, and we're told that, but we haven't actually seen it yet. But the look of the character, the villains she fights, the humor, the charm, even the setting. I didn't mention it, but it's this southwest sort of Las Vegas city with lots of lights, lots of casinos. The other stuff with Little Tuffy and Wichita, these are cute additions. I admit I didn't read every word of those stories. Those kinds of kid comics are not my life yet. I know, I know, with a new baby, eventually those will become my life but the regular adventures of Tough Girl, the crime fighter, I love them. I would read this book monthly. I wish it was a full-length 22-pager. I would collect this digitally or get the trade paperback of just the main stories if they were fully colored. Hell, even the black and white ones, they're not bad. Definitely one of the cooler things I found at Heroes Con this past year, and I'll include a link to Brian Munn's blogger page in the show notes for this episode. The most recent update on the blog that I saw was he said that issue 3 is almost done. Anyway, if you ever get a chance, do not pass up this comic. It's a lot of fun. Alright, Tough Girl and three issues of Justice League. That should cover the front end of this episode pretty well. Now I'm going to play a promo for another podcast, and after that, I'll have your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. What? Have you ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, I was just checking, right? Just checking. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey, and I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. In 1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding, comic book-filled path to 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017, and because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called It All Comes Back to Superman. It All Comes Back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It All Comes Back to Superman is part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube Podcasting Network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of Bailey Tude podcasting network can be found at www. 
www.fortressofbailytude.com. On episode 23 of Power of Fishnets, I reviewed Zatanna's backup stories from Adventure Comics 413 through 415, 419, and 421. Here's what people had to say on the Fire and Water Network website. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I bought these as they came out, and I have to say, Gorgonus put the willies up me. Oh, that's obscene, Martin. Uh, he says, Jeff Sloan was rubbish, wasn't he? Unlike the gorgeous Gray Morrow artwork. Then Martin asked if I'll be trying the new comic Mystic U, which stars Zatanna. And the answer is, eventually, maybe? Right now, I'm not planning to cover it on this podcast anytime soon, which means if I start reading it or collecting it, it'd just be for pleasure, and I'm reading other stuff for pleasure right now. I also heard Mystic U is bi-monthly, and each issue costs like $5.99. That is not appealing to me at all. That's not something I want to invest in right now. So if you're reading it, I hope it's good, but even as I say that, I'm, I'm talking myself out of this, so no, probably. Um... Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast, Superman Movie Minute, Batman Nightcast, and the wonderful Toys segments of FW Presents said, I've often wondered about these stories. I've heard about them for decades but never read them. I knew the artwork would be gorgeous. As much as I love Dick Giordano's art, and I do, I have to concede I prefer Grey Morrow's take on Zatanna. She's just more real. She looks like a very attractive, cute, real woman with a lot of personality in these pages. Giordano Z is your typical gorgeous statuesque comic goddess. Nothing wrong with that, but who would you rather spend time with? On the other hand, I never cared for Morrow's Batman. He looks like a cosplayer in a lumpy Batman costume, whereas Dick G was one of the best Batman artists of all time, with or without Neil Adams. So there you go. Love Morrow's Vigilante, though. Uh, agreed with those points. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water, Film and Water, Pod Dylan, Treasury Cast, Digest Cast, and Superman Movie Minute said, While I cannot and will not ever find fault with the work of Dick Giordano, yeah, I have to admit I'm a bigger fan of the Grey Morrow story here. His work is so distinctive and atmospheric that it can't help but stand out. A full-on Zatanna ongoing, either book or backup drawn by him, would have been something to behold. DC reprinted them in the final two Digest-sized issues of Adventure. Actually, in the 80s, DC released a Zatanna special one-shot drawn by Grey Marl, and hopefully I will get to that someday. Then Rob said, oh, and f*** Roy Moore, but only if you're of age. Nice. Paul Hicks from the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom, said, Gorgonus. <laughs> Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog said, I've read these stories because they are part of the Supergirl-led adventure books and love them. Like many, I love the work of Morrow, especially on Zatanna. His stuff does have a realistic feel to it without going over-the-top photorealistic. I love the cover for the DC Superstars of Magic book, his work on the Supergirl movie adaptation, and the Lois Lane miniseries from the 80s. And the stories are fun. Bullets to Sponges is a ridiculous trick, but I like that it was as much her stage magic as her sorcery that made her effective. I feel like that would be a cool hook for a comic book back then. She is both super-powered and a master of legitimane. And finally, Chuck Coletta said, Hey, Fishnet fans, come to the Reading Room Brown Popular Culture Library at Bowling Green State University for a true Zatanna-ish Christmas. And Chuck posted a link to an Instagram picture of, a, of the leg lamp from the Christmas story with high heels and fishnets. Wonderful. Love it, love it, love it. All right. Thank you very much, everybody who wrote in and left comments. Those were great. 
Next time, we continue our march through Zatanna's publishing history as the Mistress of Magic once again takes a backseat to Supergirl, this time appearing in backup stories in Supergirl's 1972 series. And I just may bring some backup of my own for that show, someone who has a thing or two to say about Supergirl. Seriously, you'll never guess who it is what I'm talking about. Until then... Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at ryandaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.